1: Welcome to Facing the Future, brought to you by the Concord Coalition, on WKXL, New Hampshire's talk radio station. I'm your host, Bob Bixby. Each week, we take a nonpartisan dive into topics related to the federal budget, the economy, and how they affect our nation's future. This week, we'll look at the latest economic numbers with a focus on jobs, wages, and interest rates. Our guest is Gordon Gray, Vice President for Economic Policy at the American Action Forum. Aside from the economy, we'll also get Gordon's take on a few items on the congressional agenda, such as border security, supplemental spending, and tax cuts. Concord Coalition Policy Director Tori Gorman and Chief Economist Steve Robinson join the conversation. So uh, Gordon's work at uh, AAF includes the federal budget, uh, taxes, the macroeconomic outlook. Uh, He's testified as an expert witness before Congress many times on a range of subjects, and uh, he's provided analysis uh, and commentary with The Wall Street Journal, The Washington Post, and Politico. So he's very well informed about these things. And he's also worked as a senior advisor to former Ohio Senator Rob Portman, Uh, who, by the way, was a guest on this program just a couple of weeks ago. And uh, he says hi. (laughs) Okay. Hi back. Uh, We were talking to him about a fiscal commission and uh, more on that later if we want to get to that. Tori, uh, Steve, and Gordon, welcome all back to Facing the Future.
2: Thanks, Thanks so much for
1: having me. Okay, Gordon. Well, you follow the economic numbers pretty closely as much as anybody. And uh, like almost everybody... Uh, you were surprised by the January jobs report, which uh, came in at a red-hot 353,000 job gain, which was even better than the December jobs gain of 333,000. Look, what's going on here? We're supposed to have an economy that's winding down. The Fed is trying to stomp on it. And here we are, jobs going crazy. So what what was your take on the
3: uh, January jobs number? So I'll, I'll confess, I uh, I gave a bit of a whoop when I saw the top line uh, come out. I was uh, on the higher side in my expectation for this. I just, in the absence of any uh, any data to the contrary, I just didn't see any reason to imagine that the December uh, the December pop um, would would dissipate. I mean, that's fundamentally sort of how I I go about my. My monthly guesstimate is what I call it. You know, I look at what we did, what uh, prevailing factors are are in the ether, and then look look at what changed. And frankly, nothing materially changed. And um, there are some underlying issues that you know we all you know a- any any data is qualified until it's you know done and dusted, chiseled in stone, and. Uh, long in the past and is therefore completely useless <laughs> for forwardlooking <four-league> analysis. <laughs> um, so and, you know and, and, until the, the number becomes ir- irrelevant for analysis, then we can always qualify it. And, and in this instance, it is the case that you know, January uh, numbers can be a bit squirrely. Uh, part of the reason is uh, seasonal factors. So when the Bureau of Labor Statistics puts out their jobs report, uh, one of the things that they have to do is try to isolate uh, labor flows that are sh- purely a function of of seasonal hiring. So this includes you know the flow of teachers in and out of, of, of employment for the purpose of the survey when they're 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 not working because it's summer. Now, this includes um, uh, hiring that's just related to to, to Christmas, for example. And uh, what the statistical agencies try to do is is smooth those out. Otherwise, it would look, you know, if if everybody that was dressed up like uh, Santa's elves over Christmas, uh, you know, they're off the rolls in January, it would look like we would have a, a massive uh, uh, employment loss, and that's really not capturing what's going on in the labor market. So what they try to do is tease some of these out by putting in factors that, that essentially puts back some of the some of the jobs that might otherwise be lost. And going uh, and, and this is there's an element of art to this science, and that introduces a little bit of un, uh, a little bit of um, of risk to the the numbers, a little uncertainty. And as the Bureau of Labor Statistics gets more information, they refine their estimate. And so, particularly in January, um, they're going to take a couple more cuts at this. And and particularly when we get a real a real surprise, we always wonder whether or not this will be revised down or up. However, we also saw some massive revisions upward to the past, and so um, for those folks who are saying, "Ah, this will be revised down," uh, there's there's every you know it, it could be revised up. Um, you know that was the chatter related to the de- some of the December number that was a, something of an upward surprise too. Instead, it it just got stronger. Fundamentally, the labor market is strong and and healthy. The uh, employers want to keep hiring. And for a number of reasons, there have been a immigration has been part of this. I know we'll talk about that later, has provided a a source of labor and the economy continues to to demand it. Um, We observed a bit of a downshift over the course of the year, but shifted up again.
1: One thing that uh, just is is sort of a baseline. um, What would be a good jobs number? In other other words, what would be a normal if if you're just trying to keep pace with workforce growth? So kind of like a neutral jobs number. Yeah. We used to think of it as around 150, around 175,000, something like that. So I don't right. know whether that's gone up
3: uh, in the years or whether it's still around that level. You know, fun- fundamentally, you know, the the uh, it's sort of an equilibrium you would want uh, if you're um, you know, absent sort of the, the, the business cycle, yeah, you more or less want in, employment to uh, to keep employment growth, labor force growth to keep pace with at least inflation, or excuse me, population growth. Um, and so, in, the number, the headcount, eventually scales with with population for what what keeps that relationship stable. But there, thereabouts, you know, that's you know, it's when a lot the, less keep, than three, and
1: fifty yeah. three, well uh,
3: above. <laughs> Which, so how come the unemployment rate didn't go down? Uh, well, so this is a this is this is one of those interesting things that I'm keeping my eye on, and one of the one of those qualifications that I that I have to introduce uh, into this discussion, which is I don't think that there's a monolithic view of of where we are in in the uh, in the economy in in the, the long running recovery, right? You know, you have I think credible analysts who've been concerned about. Uh, recession. You know, a lot of them have been wrong. Uh, um, uh, that's with making predictions. Um, there are potential risks. And one of the things that you look at when you're worried about risks and worried about when a recovery can turn into a slowdown is when some of the surveys, um, because the jobs report is actually two surveys. It's a survey of people, and then it's a survey of employers. Um, and these can tell different stories. And one of the things that that um, I think uh, I've looked at is that in the in the past some of these uh, some of these uh, these surveys are are not in harmony. The December one, for example, was was that case. Less so with with January. A technical issue like the seasonal factors is that when you go from December to January, the statistical agencies. Rebenchmark all of their numbers, and that makes monthly comparisons a challenge. And so, I don't want to lean on to on these, on these much. But there's the potential that basically uh, you you might be getting two diverging stories of the of the economy. I don't really see that as sort of betting in just yet. It is it was not the case that the that one of the surveys in the jobs report was as potentially rosy as the the as the the headline jobs never might suggest um that's not to suggest the other one was weak when surveys diverge you you want to pay attention okay uh
1: well we've only got about a minute left in this opening segment uh that tory do you want to sort of tee us up for uh, where you want to go uh, following the break
2: yeah, I wanted to talk a little bit about where the job growth is coming from. Uh, you know, last year, 2023, was a horrible year for the tech industry, 191,000 jobs lost. And there are, it's no better this year. We're only, you know, a month into 2024 and 32,000 tech workers have been laid off. So if the economy is growing at, you know, 350,000 last month, obviously they needed to add, you know, 370,000 in order to soak up the, or 380,000 in order to soak up the 32,000 in tech workers that were laid off, which is like, I mean, this is all just eye popping, head scratching job growth. So I was just curious where are the, the job growth coming from.
1: I think we're going to have to do a cliffhanger here and <laughs> get the answer to that question on the other side of this break. Where are the jobs coming from You're listening to Facing the Future, and I'm your host, Bob Bixby. Tori Gorman, Steve Robinson, and I are discussing the latest economic reports with Gordon Gray, Vice President for Economic Policy at the American Action Forum, and we'll be right back after these short messages. Welcome back to Facing the Future. I'm your host, Bob Bixby. Tori Gorman, Steve Robinson, and I are discussing the latest economics reports with Gordon Gray. He's the Vice President for Economic Policy at the American Action Forum. And before the break, we were talking about the spectacular January jobs growth number. And Tori asked the question,
3: where are these jobs coming from, Gordon? The, they were fairly broad based. By and large had not been any obvious laggards uh, in the sectors over the, and particularly over the last year, uh, there was one sector that I had my eye on and that was essentially temp workers. I was sh- amazed at they that sector had 11 months of straight losses. And that had has traditionally been uh, like so many, not a completely reliable, nevertheless a, a a frequent canary in the coal mine on a potential recession is that you st- you start to see temp workers being shed, and so when they were being shed month after month after month, I I got a little concerned, and that was that reversed. <laughs> so so I was surprised to see that though in a, in a, but I shouldn't be in a report that was otherwise just broadly um, strong for employment growth and. That report reflected that fairly broad broad gains. Um, we are seeing, um, I I think, a re- return to just broader trends. And you know, I, I think uh, Tory's question was was speaking to this w- with respect to to um, the tech sector, that frankly I, I think was just uh, overweight in terms of of uh, labor labor cost during the the pandemic. Um, I've heard from. Uh, from folks in that that sector, that they they added a lot of people and they added a lot of expensive people, and um, we're we're seeing the economy um, as it often does just evolve. And in that evolution, um, there's uh, rebalancing, and I think that's that's uh, what's going on in the tech sector. Whereas otherwise, broadly, you know, you have an economy that's growing and employers continue to add, to add workers.
0: Uh, Let me jump in here. So Gordon, let me go back to a point you made in the first segment about the different surveys and to to connect it up with the canary in the coal mine. So as you pointed out, there actually are two surveys. There's the household survey uh, and the employer survey. So one is a count of payroll. So if you have somebody who works for two companies, they count that person twice because they they don't basically reconcile people with multiple jobs. With the household survey, if you have two jobs, they just ask you, are you employed or unemployed? So you just count once. So there's some differences in the two surveys, one being the multiple job holders. The other, of course, is self-employed. And there's been some sort of classification problems with self-employed. Are you really self-employed? Are you an independent contractor? Definitely. You know, where do you fall in that? And that, that sort of goes to this issue of, of temp workers. You know, are they are they contractors? Are they employees or whatever? But it's great um, historically, what you've seen is, Whenever you get a growing gap between these two surveys, if you if you try to standardize them, you know, you take out the self-employed, you try to account for the the multiple job holders, so you can you can kind of sync up the two surveys, and there're usually a little bit of a gap. But what we've seen historically, when that gap starts growing, that tends to uh, coincide with a, a recession. Yeah, and of course, what we see right now in the uh, in, in the household survey, there's 140, or I'm sorry, 154 million jobs, and in the employer survey, there's 157, 158 million. So there's about a three and a half million gap between those, which is a, a fairly sizable gap, and it's been growing over the last um, last year or so. Now, if again, you know, all, you know, people talk about the yield curve being a predictor for recessions and 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 you can look at this notion of this gap between the employment survey and the household survey, that potentially could be an indicator. I mean, do, do you have any thoughts about, you know, yeah. back, back to maybe the temp worker issue? I mean, yeah. well, is this maybe an indication of, of a coming slowdown?
3: That's a great point. I'm glad you pointed that out. And, and I, I think on the, at least in the, the temp worker and the, and the related problem of, or the broader problem, of work of worker classification, at least for the purposes of the statistical agencies, is this one they just openly acknowledge. <laughs> so that they, you know, as being uh, a problem, as being a gap in their uh, their ability to sort of to wrap their heads around uh, contingent work and gig workers, and so that I think this speaks to uh, I think some of the broader problems also in uh, response rates to surveys, and not just the the employment. Uh, survey, but uh, all of the surveys that BLS does. I mean, the job, the JOLTS survey that measures job openings, uh, separations, quits, hires, things like that. The response rate has been going down and has gone down uh, over the pandemic. Uh, Response rates to uh, the major uh, CPS and CES uh, have gone down. And so I kind of feel like some of these relationships that we've relied on statistically, like the measuring you know gaps between household and and payroll survey when we know that there's weaknesses in the data is you know we're seeing a lot of these just exacerbated with because of the pandemic um there's just we just have less certainty in some of these series um and they tell you this so it feels like as we're looking forward i don't know like the the batteries in our flashlight just are a little weaker maybe than they used to be um because the quality of the of the surveys and it's not a fun i mean these are some of the best statisticians on the planet. I mean, the the the, the methods, techniques that BLS has that they deploy for collecting your surveys are top notch, state of the art, and um, you know we have a lot of confidence in their meth- methodology. But ultimately, society, business, uh, industry, the population at large was pretty well um, disrupted during the, the pandemic, and and since then we've seen a. a uh, some of these surveys, uh, we have, we just have a little less confidence in them. When I, I don't want to uh, conclu- draw two-star two conclusions from some of the, the relationships that we may have had higher confidence in in the past.
0: Yeah. No, I mean, clearly when you're doing a survey and people stop responding to the survey, the survey becomes less reliable. It's not a fault yeah. of the survey. It's the fault of the fact that if people don't respond, you're you know, and if people who don't respond are different than people who do respond, the, the sample no longer is representative of the population. Right. Obviously, that can create problems.
1: One thing um, I wanted to touch on, too, is wage growth. I mean, people are not only not only is a, an uptick in, in jobs, strong uh, job growth, but uh, wages relative to inflation have have finally been been growing, which is always a good thing. Um unless you're somebody that's worried about inflation coming back. So, I mean, where, where, how did you view this report in terms of the wage growth?
3: So uh, I'm of two minds. So, <laughs> and part of this is, is, a, is, is a function of time, and I'll explain. So when I get the, the average hourly earnings from the employment survey, uh, you know, I look at the, the monthly rate of change, and I look at the year-over-year rate of change, you know, that can sort of you can get an instant reaction. And I was like, oh, you know, you know, average hour earnings uh, uh, accelerated. And they 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 popped. And I also popped pretty big and uh, under revisions, like substantially, um, you know, watching the coverage when the news came out. Uh, the, the, the folks on CNBC, were, uh, <laughs> I think, had a moment of quiet, but <laughs> which is rare. However, in the presence of productivity growth, this is a good thing. This is durable and sustainable. You know, it's not not entirely one for one because we have observed inflation. You know, ab- above uh, above target, but um, and above zero. But uh, but you can have uh, significant uh, growth in wages if you have or if it is done in the presence of productivity growth. In fact, that is the linkage. Um, problem is, we don't get these at the same time. Uh, productivity growth is notoriously volatile and um, we also don't entirely uh, understand it, which is to say how we measure it is in part a statistical um, remainder. Uh, <laughs> uh, we more or less just divide the, the economy by, um, uh, by the number of hours people work uh, and then we decompose it further uh, to sort of figure out what the contribution of each um, sort of factors of production are. but there's there's something of a black box to this uh, where we have a residual where it's just sort of like, yeah, this is the the secret sauce in the economy, but a lot of policy is about the secret sauce. And so when we don't entirely understand how it's made <laughs> and and everything, and it's just one of those one of those things that uh, is a bit of a puzzle. It's been of a puzzle when a, when productivity, comes and goes what truly animates it but we know we like it and and we have since observed that there was a significant productivity uh significant productivity growth over the last year uh and you can have uh strong wage gains without inflationary pressure when you have productivity growth and that's what we got
1: uh well i would be good to pick up on that on the other side of the break you're listening to facing the future i'm your host bob bixby Tory Gorman, Steve Robinson and I are discussing the latest economic numbers with Gordon Gray, Vice President for Economic Policy at the American Action Forum. We'll be right back after these short messages. Welcome back to Facing the Future. I'm your host, Bob Bixby. Chary Gorman, Steve Robinson, and I are talking with Gordon Gray, Vice President for Economic Policy at the American Action Forum, which is a think tank here in Washington. We've been discussing the latest economic numbers and what they mean for the future. Steve,
0: yeah. So, so before the break, Gordon, we were talking about uh, productivity and, you know, we and also the jobs report and the the problem with the pandemic and surveys and the difficulty of measuring the things we're trying to measure. And as you note, productivity is notoriously difficult to measure because it's sort of this residual of how much of output is real and how much of it is nominal price change. But I mean, one of the things that happened, of course, during the pandemic was the shutdowns and a lot of people went home and worked from home. And even since sort of the pandemic was over, companies are having trouble getting people back to the office. And so I guess the question becomes, if productivity is a measure of hours worked, And a large, significant share of the population is now working from home. Is there some question about how we're measuring the hours worked? I mean, if people are at home, they might be working more hours because they can, you know, after the nine to five day ends, they come back after dinner and work some more. But during the day, they may not be working their eight hours. And so you have this issue of of measurement of, you know, now that the workforce is, is different in terms of the place of work, maybe we're measuring hours differently and that might be affecting the numbers. What, what, any thought there?
3: That's a great point. And, you know, to the, I, I know one of the elements of, of, of the sort of post pandemic recovery has very much been people working from home, people taking on uh, project work, gig work, and or um, also, you know, starting their own, own businesses. And the distinction between those two activities is, Pretty arbitrary, and, and you ask, you know, someone who runs their own business, like, oh, uh, when do you take your time? When do you take time off? And like, never, <laughs> you know, like they're always on the clock. And so, how would you ask that person to characterize their workday? And it would probably be be very different from how I would. Um, I know when my boss wants me in this office and when I'm when I can go. So I think you point out a, a, a great question, and we know that that kind of work picked up uh, during the pandemic. I do think, and we talked a little bit about this before, that we have not. We've we are we are trying, and I know the statistical agencies are are trying to improve their their ability to capture uh, some of these changes in labor patterns. Uh, but I think they've been somewhat candid, and and you can see some of the gaps uh, that that they've identified.
1: Well, we're all virtual here, and think of ourselves as being very productive, so
0: <laughs> working all the time.
1: always at work um i wanted to ask uh the question that washington has been obsessing about for a long time uh and that is do we have a soft landing i mean uh you know at at this if we were having this conversation last year everybody would have said well we're probably going to have a recession and yeah maybe a mild recession but unemployment is going to go up and you know, growth is going to go down and, you know, we wouldn't be talking about the exploding uh, jobs report. So we got through 2023 without the recession and, uh, you know, jobs, you know, the unemployment rate is still low. The economy is growing strong, very strong in the fourth quarter and uh, even over the year. I'm wondering, is this the soft landing Uh, or do we
3: still have some ways to go? I think uh, if you listen to what Chairman Powell had to say, he would tell you, we're, you know, we're still on approach and he's been trying to convince people that we're, you know, we're not taxing yet. Uh, You know, I think a lot of, there, there was a lot of happy talk or, or uh, uh, manifesting from a big, uh, a lot of the big bank research shops about a, a Fed cut in March. And, I think the chairman has been doing his utmost for a while to telegraph that that that, that is a, a bit optimistic. So, you know, the Fed is still has been leaning hard uh, on, uh, you know, they have tightened monetary policy considerably. And their view is that that restrictive monetary policy posture is appropriate for some time. And because they've uh, still observed risks. Uh, from from the inflationary side. And to the extent they continue to fight those risks, uh, that introduces risk on the employment side. That introduces risk on 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 the recovery side. And I don't think we're out of the woods yet. I think we're better off than a lot of people expected. And I think that the productivity bump was something that a lot of people didn't expect. And that was definitely one of the things that broke big for the U.S. last year.
1: Well, as so, your uh Boss at AAF, Doug wrote in a recent blog, "It's something like, well, that's that's great. We had the bump this year. Does that mean that that will go away next year and we won't have uh, that that kind of strong growth?"
0: You know, the, the financial markets are hyperventilating about the the Fed funds rate and when is the Fed going to lower the rate? But um, you know, I think they they've taken their eye off the ball because, as as you're aware, the Fed over the last Basically, eight to ten years has has run up their balance sheet. What was called quantitative easing. We had a Fed balance sheet of a trillion dollars before the financial panic or financial uh, meltdown in two thousand eight, and it went up to four trillion. And right before the pandemic, it, it went from four. Or right after the pandemic, it went up from four to, to almost nine trillion. So you're talking about a Fed balance sheet that's just unprecedented in, in size relative to the economy and relative to the banking yeah. sector. Now, in the last year, that almost nine trillion dollar Fed balance sheet has been running, rolling, running off. They've been allowing the the Treasury securities and the mortgage backed securities to 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 roll off, and they're down now down to about uh, seven point six trillion. So they've they've taken off um, a, a fairly sizable chunk. Now, there was a study some years ago, or a couple of years ago, saying that every one percent of GDP equivalent of the of the Fed balance sheet rolling off is like raising the Fed funds rate by ten basis points. Now, yeah. by, by my calculation, the roll off that's occurred in the last year is equivalent to about fifty basis points. So, h- had the Fed raised the Fed funds rate by fifty basis points, the market would be going wild. But, you know, they're saying, you know, when is the Fed going to start cutting? But instead, what's going on is that they're rolling off the balance sheet, and that has the effect of raising the rate. You know you know are, are, are we are are the financial markets missing something should they be paying more attention to the balance
3: sheet uh, well i think the chairman is probably trying to tell them to uh because in <laughs> his statement he was also you know hey dummy by the way we're also going to continue rolling this off mm-hmm. and we're going to keep doing it the way we've been doing it so i uh, i yeah he, he is trying to get them to listen <laughs>
0: but it doesn't seem to be working.
3: No. <laughs>
2: <laughs> sticking with the uh sticking with the economy here for a second. I, I know one of the things that that your boss Doug has been and watching pretty closely is business fixed investment and it's been, you know, pretty mediocre for a little while mm-hmm. to the point that it's concerning him. We've got a tax bill that's moving through the house right now. It's actually sitting in the Senate, what am I saying? It's been through the house. Um that's got three pretty business friendly tax cuts in there. mm mm-hmm. Mhm. You see those as being a game changer at all, or are they just too small to be anything of, of note when it comes to business fixed investment?
3: As a policy matter, um, the 100% expensing provision that was in TCGA is uh, the, the best tax treatment of investment. And good tax policy is made better by being permanent. A 22-month extension is no is not gonna to uh materially change the the u.s economic outlook joint committee on tax more or less said this um it's good it's the right policy to have in place it's no longer in place so it should be in place so mm-hmm. I, um as, as sort of a matter of what should the tax code look like it should be there as a matter of Will enacting that tax bill materially alter the U.S. economy? No.
1: Well, that one, uh, we'll have to wait and see what's going to happen with that one, because it's, as Tory said, it's uh, passed the House with overwhelming bipartisan support. And uh, interestingly enough, on paper, it's actually paid for. Um, although yeah. in the future, you would have to come up with other offsets to continue uh, to continue the provisions. But that, I guess, is a problem for another Congress. Um but in the senate they seem to want to take a close look at it and perhaps put their own uh imprint on it so it's yeah, not quite uh, over the finish line yet um when we come back after the break i want to talk about something else that's uh, in the senate and this one may never get any further <laughs> and that is Uh, an immigration reform bill and a uh, policy that Gordon talked to us about on the show several months ago. You're listening to Facing the Future. I'm your host, Bob Bixby. Tori Gorman, Steve Robinson, and I are talking with Gordon Gray, Vice President for Economic Policy at the American Action Forum. We'll be right back after these short messages. Welcome back to Facing the Future. I'm your host, Bob Bixby, Tori Gorman, Steve Robinson, and I are talking with Gordon Gray, Vice President for Economic Policy at the American Action Forum, which is a very thoughtful and prominent think tank here in Washington. You know, Gordon, uh, one thing that uh, as we face the future is um, declining workforce growth. And, you know, all of us baby boomers can't hang on forever. And that leads to the question of immigration. I think the CBO said in their last report that um, deaths will outnumber births by 2040. And that's a very serious thing, particularly for those of us that are closer to one side of that equation than the other. Immigration is an important topic. There is a Senate uh, bipartisan approach to immigration and so i wanted to defer to Tory here to to put that uh, our senate expert here to, to put that subject, <laughs> put that subject on the table
2: yeah i guess gordon my first question to you is you know we had you on the show uh last year when we were talking about ways to to uh you know close the the, the gaping maw of of budget deficits that extend extend out of an item and one of the ways is you know to grow the economy, but we've got a problem with workforce growth because women are marrying later and having fewer children. And one of the ways to improve or increase um, the labor force is immigration to bring high skilled uh, uh, workers here to to the United States. In your research last year, we were talking about how there were some very simple things that we could do without changing immigration law at all, you know, just to to improve uh, the number of of highly skilled immigrants who are working here in the United States. And that was addressing the visa backlog you were talking about. There was this enormous backlog in uh, high skilled visas. And you were literally talking about this is one instance where government could just throw a ton of money at the problem and fix it without having to worry about all of the the morass that's going on at the border and all the other politics. So we know now that we've got a, a a border proposal uh sitting in the senate um it's in it's in a broader bill called a security supplemental it has money for ukraine israel gaza taiwan etc but it also has money to address immigration at the border and i'm curious whether or not you've had a chance to take a look at that bill yet and whether or not it has the appropriations inside of it that might address this backlog of immigration uh, visas and and might help jumpstart uh you know, an increase in in United States labor force.
3: Yeah. So uh, let me take one quick step back just to to speak to um, uh, the, the research I, I was doing. And some others have also weighed on this is fundamentally um, the processing, the administrative component of of immigration. Uh, in addition to all of the other challenges uh, related, immigration is also a bit of a mess in that there were millions of folks waiting for uh, the processing of, of various visas uh, and to include sort of em- employment visas, the ability to work um, in an economy that was struggling and has uh, uh, f- confronting the demographic factors that, that we talked about. This is a no-brainer. <laughs> People want to come here. They want to work. We should let them. Um, and just we had a bureaucratic backlog and a lot of it was headcount. There just weren't enough bodies to process the paper. And there's related uh, a resource constraint in that the agency uh, that uh, whose mission it is to process these, these visas was constrained by funding, which is to say they their funding wasn't provided through Appropriations Acts. Instead, it was a multi-year Uh, fee schedule that had to go through the Administrative Procedures Act. And uh, basically the agency is required to be self-financing almost entirely. It's somewhat of a rarity in in the United States whereby visa applicants essentially pay for the agency. So fees are set for visas and that funds the agency. And then, but that provides no capacity whatsoever to dig out from the hole they were in, which was on the order of 5 million applications. They were literally forced to basically live hand to mouth, and uh, over the course of the pandemic, there were some appropriations to provide USCIS with some resources to to start digging, um, and that that ha- has been uh, that that was done. It didn't resolve fully the backlog. This border bill does involve uh, a couple things uh, related to this. Um, First, they do provide an appropriation for the agency. Um, Now, a a lot of it is more oriented to some of the more enforcement side, but there is a component in the bill that does is mindful of the importance of legal immigration. And it expands employment visas, you know, several, you know, to the extent the backlog was about five million um, before uh, and, and some years higher. Um, 50,000 new employment visas is is not gonna, again, kind of like the tax bill. Good policy, just not big enough to really move the dial, you know, uh, and, and this is kind of r- like that. Um, the scope and scale of our labor force challenge requires um, much much bigger, you know our economy is massive. We need large numbers of people to work in it. And fifty thousand isn't gonna do it. Some of the um, uh, some of the money, some of the funding will help in this effort, um, but there's more to do fundamentally.
2: Got it.
1: If this uh, if this uh, latest bill goes down in flames, I mean, it never goes anywhere. Uh, do you think that there's any appetite on the Hill for maybe at least addressing this portion of it that uh, that you've laid out? Because
3: it's really just no. No, <laughs> no, it's too good. It's No, it, 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 it was a it, this is a no brainer a couple of years ago. Uh, mm-hmm. And. Um, uh, a, this
1: is a this is a frightening pattern of things that yeah. there's a great deal of bipartisan agreement on, yeah. but, but they won't do it. I mean, there there's too little much little, agreement. Little yeah, it's too so good of an idea. Health care policy is another example. There are things, uh, believe it or not, basically uh, on administrative matters similar to this just payment schedules and whatnot uh, that that can't get can't get passed, even though they've been proposed by administrations of various policies. And it's just a a real head scratcher. And one wonders why ratings agencies have downgraded (laughs) or put the U.S. on watch. A lot of it is this dysfunction.
3: So that's a great, great point. I mean, I think those of us who've looked at the rating ratings agencies in the past, you know, some of them are mechanical. You know, it's, you know, basically, um, you know, revenue is a share of interest, uh, interest costs. Like, can you pay your debt? But increasingly, I think some agencies are looking at, you know, we the House of Representatives was closed for, you know, know, weeks at a time, for goodness sake, like basic dysfunction. And it matters. You know, we have global security challenges, widely acknowledged problems at the border. There's a bipartisan bill that addresses both, and we'll wait and see what happens. But I think we have a pretty good guess.
1: Yeah, I mean, it's just—I mean—they're pretty pretty candid about it. Um, mm-hmm. But uh, so, given all of that, uh, let me get back to the um, summary question that I've been asking guests, which is, oh, okay, what about a fiscal commission? I mean, it—it's—it's uh, it's been proposed. You know it's uh we could roll eyes about it like oh yeah a commission uh, then again you know that may be the only
3: game in town so wh- what are your uh, thoughts on that um i think you characterize them well <laughs> <laughs> I- i'm inclined to roll my eyes but it's the only game in town uh, <laughs> so I, look I, I support uh what uh, uh you know errington peters uh, efforts and and others i think there's been um, you know, really good work done at the, at the budget committee um, to, to, to work on this. I think, you know, they couldn't get a budget resolution on the floor. So uh, th- this is another avenue. I think they're to be commended for doing their job. Um, getting Congress to take this seriously is, is hard and they're doing the, the best they can. I mean, I think there's fiscal commissions produce, you know, can be productive, uh and so i think that's that's to their credit i i I think the scope and scale of our challenges with respect to 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 the budget eventually you know they demand basically the american people to care because the challenges are going to involve policy changes that will matter to it and um a fiscal commission may be maybe a great place to start
1: well i wonder um this, this comes up a lot you know people people ask well yeah, you know, it's the Concord Coalition that depends on nonpartisan, you know, fact-based analysis. And uh, when we did a fiscal wake-up tour several years ago, the the idea was here are the basic facts, and we had liberals and conservatives who agreed with it. And it was just now let's have a debate on proper policy. I do wonder sometimes whether you can even get consensus on basic facts. I, I mean, I I just I don't know.
3: <laughs> I'm but concerned hope- that you would not, or at least that consensus is fraying.
1: Uh does anybody have a positive note to end on because we've got another minute left or so and I should <laughs> go. See. Productivity is good. We had it. Productivity. <laughs> <laughs> and we're all working at home and being very productive. So
2: I don't know, should we should we now, ask the question is Congress going to pass appropriations bills before March 1st and March March 8th? Uh
3: I much much like my um my job's uh guesstimate my, my my forecast i look at what what happened last time and i see if anything changed <laughs> so by that outlook i i would have to say no <laughs> well
1: that didn't succeed in getting us out on a high note actually. i'm
0: sorry <laughs> <laughs> well,
3: uh, I would, anyway. maybe maybe i'm missing something i would love to know if 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 you're if you're more optimistic than, than i am on that i mean maybe they're uh, just tired of cr and i just don't know
1: yeah, I don't know I don't know how you get from here to there, given the uh, red lines that everybody's drawn in the sand. But uh, yeah, we'll see. On that optimistic note, uh, that's all the time we have for this week. Maybe that's a good thing. <laughs> You're listening to Facing the Future. I'm your host, Bob Bixby. Tori Gorman, Steve Robinson, and I have been discussing the latest economic numbers with Gordon Gray, Vice President for Economic Policy at the American Action Forum. Thanks for tuning in. I'll be back next week with another edition of Facing the Future.